welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Bridget Allen. And I'm Kristen Kimmer. And back in studio with us today is Sarah Partial Perry, Heritage Foundation Senior Legal Fellow. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me back. I love this show. I am problematic as well. So <laughs> yeah, <it works>. you are. <laughs> well, something else somewhat problematic in the news this week has been all of the craziness with former President Donald Trump. Have you all been following his indictment, the arraignment, his trip to New York City on Tuesday? You know, yes and no. I will say that the uh, indictment has more holes than a piece of Swiss cheese. <laughs> and um, our John Malcolm, who um, is the vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government, has written extensively on this. And he's a former federal prosecutor and really understands this stuff. But I'm going to tell you, the local prosecutors didn't even think there was anything there. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Alvin Bragg, who is notorious for being what we like to call a rogue prosecutor, in other words, you don't enforce the criminal statutes on the books that are already there to cut back on crime in a city laden with crime, but you make a point of going after a former president? I don't know. It stinks to me. It does. And I think it's it's interesting because even the people who don't like Trump, like, uh, yeah, we we think that this looks pretty fishy and pretty politically motivated, which says something. Yeah, I, I would just love to learn what dictionary the left is using or these these prosecutors, too, are using, because when we use these words like insurrectionist and and, you know, whatever, you know, breaking whatever law they think this is, um, it, it just seems like they kind of are unraveling a string and, and going at it in a way that makes absolutely no sense. Well, and I predict that so much of this is going to backfire and already is. I mean, the fact that uh, Trump has literally made millions of dollars, his campaign has made millions of dollars following uh, his indictment, It, I, I think that this is going to be a classic case of, whoops, that worked out way better for Trump than uh, than the left intended. But we'll wait and see. Obviously, things are unraveling, and we've just learned the charges against Trump, that he faces 34 different charges. So uh, things are certainly heating up in D.C., but it's actually going to be a while before there's any sort of hearing. It'll be December before really the next uh, piece in this puzzle gets filled in, and uh, then could be next year before there's any real conclusion. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll cover more of that at some point. But wow, it's just been wild. Kristen, we have a lot to cover, though, on today's show. Go ahead. Let us know what we have queued up. Yeah, up on today's Problematic Women, GOP lawmakers are trying to block funding for a law that has been used to target pro-life Americans. Plus, the Attorney General of Florida is suing the radical pro-abortion group Jane's Revenge. We break down the lawsuit. And major tech leaders like Elon Musk have asked companies developing AI technology to push the pause button and consider the consequences of artificial intelligence. Also on today's show, we talk Easter traditions and how you can make the holiday a little more meaningful this year. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find the stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Okay, 
Before we dive too deep into this first segment, we need to do a quick recap on what exactly the FACE Act is. The FACE Act stands for the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, and the act exists to protect patients, providers, and facilities that offer services that are related to reproductive health. So that both includes abortion clinics. It also includes pro-life pregnancy centers. And houses of worship, and which not everybody remembers. That's yeah, really important to add. But unfortunately, the FACE Act, it's been weaponized. And specifically within the past year, it's been weaponized to attack pro-life individuals, despite the fact that pro-abortion activists have attacked more than 100 pro-life pregnancy centers and churches in the past 11 months since the leak of the Dobbs opinion. So uh, you all may remember that we've talked about a husband and a father, Mark Houck, on the show last September. The FBI arrived at Houck's home with guns drawn and arrested him over an incident that had taken place at a Philadelphia-based Planned Parenthood where uh, Mark pushed an abortion clinic volunteer who was uh, repeatedly harassing his son. So Hauk has since been cleared of all of those FACE Act charges. But Hauk was not the only one who was targeted under the FACE Act. In 2022, the FACE Act was used more than a dozen times against pro-life activists, despite the fact that there were more than 80 attacks against pro-life centers, and more than 140 attacks against churches in 2022. But even given that, there were no charges in 2022 against the far left and their attacks on pro-life centers. So because of this, Texas Republican Representative Chip Roy is leading a group of lawmakers in calls for defunding the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. So, Sarah... If this lawmaker's request is granted that Chip Roy is leading, it would block federal funding from going to the DOJ to enforce the FACE Act, which essentially sounds like it would render the act useless, would it not? It would, because the Department of Justice would have no money to enforce it. Now, of course, they they have the option, but remember that these are, this is a federal statute, a federal criminal statute that can be um, invoked by any of the uh, assistant U.S. attorneys or the U.S. attorneys who are in any of the federal jurisdictions around the country. And in fact, that precisely goes to sort of a related story down in Florida. And in Florida, uh, Antifa and Jane's Revenge have been uh, charged with violations of the FACE Act for their targeting of 83 pro-life pregnancy centers um, and those 144 churches that we mentioned previously since the May 2022 leak of the Dobbs opinion. So the Attorney General Ashley Moody there in the state of Florida um, has gone ahead and just charged these organizations as criminal enterprises, as violations of the FACE Act. And she is fully within her right, number one. But number two, I think it's going to be up to these local prosecutors to be able to invoke the FACE Act, because it's very clear that the Department of Justice has 
sort of picked and chosen winners and losers on this. I mean, to say that there are only four individuals who have been targeted within the past 18 months for mm-hmm. for vandalization or arson or attacking houses of worship or crisis pregnancy centers, when you'll wake up Mark Houck in the early dawn hours and a pre-dawn raid with guns drawn and a SWAT team, mm-hmm. something, by the way, you reserve only for organized crimes or drug kingpins is absolutely unconscionable to me. But this is what we've seen from this Department of Justice. There is, and there's a trickle-down effect. Then we see local prosecutor Alvin Bragg, who has selectively prosecuted those particular criminal charges in Manhattan. So uh, there is really sort of this pervasive sense that we don't see leftist interests taking laws that are on the books and enforcing them unilaterally, making a an equal application applications they are bound to do under the constitution Mm -hmm. yeah i think what i find interesting about all of this too and i'd love your take on this sarah is so the damages and fines for these individuals are one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. so we have the doj and they can definitely prosecute and deter these people from targeting pregnancy centers from targeting religious uh organizations and and places of worship what do you see the aftermath of all of this being, you know, we find them $170,000. What's preventing organizations similar to what happened with the George Floyd riots from, you know, saying, don't worry, we got you. Kamal Harris tweeted saying BLM will give you money to get you out of jail to pay your fines. Do you, do you think this could be a similar situation? I do. But again, I think it depends very much on the willingness of the prosecutors to actually enforce the acts fairly. So you've got essentially two sides of the of the same coin. This is a particular um, political administration that's chosen not to enforce these criminal prohibitions and, in fact, has utilized some of its political figureheads to say, we have your back almost Mm -hmm. encouraging the criminal behavior by promising failure to enforce, number one, and number two, restitution on the back end, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. I think if somebody was clever enough and you could find a plaintiff withstanding, there are class action suits that could be brought against the federal government for violation of civil rights under a particular statute, Section 1983 for use of legal nerds, a <laughs> violation of civil rights of these particular individuals who have a case to say, listen, the government is duty bound to enforce these. We have we've been damaged. Our property has been damaged. Our um, housing has been damaged. We've suffered um, emotional distress. And it just takes the right set of plaintiffs to be able to do that. And I think in the end, ultimately, this is going to be something that is largely directed toward the American voter, right? Mm. It's it's incumbent on us to vote out and to pay attention to those down-ballot races. Nobody pays attention to people like DAs, right? So when you vote a district attorney into office, nobody's really thinking, well, what's their sort of criminal um, enforcement record, right? Mm-hmm. What have they done for crime? You're naturally paying attention to who your congressional representative is going to be, who your senator is going to be, who the president's going to be. In your state... This is my pro-democracy speech. I love it. I love this. For anybody who's listening. (laughs) In your state, you have an opportunity to fully impact the future for yourself, 
for your family, for your kids, by paying attention to those local races that will matter to you the most. School board races, district attorney races, um, local prosecutors, judges in many cases, which are elected by the populace. There are so many opportunities to say, we're going to take back, this is how the states are supposed to work under a system of federalism, right? The 10th Amendment to the Constitution envisions that these kinds of things, local criminal matters should be handled in the states. You can make an impact, but you have to go out and vote. That means, unfortunately, doing your homework and going out and paying attention to these more minor down-ballot races. Yeah, I think it's interesting how this administration, not just for this issue, but for a lot of different issues, have used the DOJ. They've At the last place I worked, we always used the word weaponize, which we do here too, but you're so right. You need to pay attention to the subjects that matter the most to you mm-hmm. because we are seeing in real time what it's like to politicize a federal agency, which allegedly all of these people take an oath to, to uphold the Constitution and do what's best for our country. We're not seeing that. That's terrifying. I, I'll give you a perfect example. Kimberly Gardner, who's a local prosecutor in St. Louis, Missouri, theft of Hyundais in particular is up 1,400%. That is Mm. 1,400% theft of those cars. Mm. Well, rather than prosecuting Grand Theft Auto, she's decided she's going to sue Hyundai for the failure to put in, quote, adequate safety devices. Are you joking? A whopping $75,000 claim for 1,400% increase in car thefts. Go out and get the criminals, Kimberly, okay? Let's not pay attention to the international car conglomerate. Do your homework and do your job in your own jurisdiction. Wow. What is going on? Like, what Elections is the world that we're matter. living in right now? <laughs> Elections matter. That's the takeaway. Yes. If you take nothing else away from this show today, elections matter. But stay tuned. Because up next, we're going to be talking about why tech experts like Elon Musk are asking for a six-month pause on the development of artificial intelligence. But in the meantime, if you are enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and you want other like-minded podcasts, then look no further than Students Over Systems. It's a new podcast product by the Independent Women's Forum. And every other Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, host Ginny Gentles is joined by parents and policymakers to discuss school choice and parental rights. Students Over Systems charts a path to a brighter future by featuring the voices of the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. And if you can't wait for that new episode to drop, then you can listen to past episodes at IWF.org, or you can just search for the Students Over Systems podcast in your favorite podcast app. All right, so it feels like big tech is once again on fire this week, this time, though, because of an open letter signed by thousands, including leading technology experts such as Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak. The Future of Life Institute published the letter calling for all AI labs to pause the development of systems more powerful than OpenAI's GPT-4 for at least six months due to fears over the profound risks to society and humanity that the AI poses. The letter goes on to say that, quote, level of planning and management is not happening even though recent months have seen AI labs locked in an out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. Mm. 
Signatories are calling for a public and verifiable pause to jointly develop and implement a set of shared safety protocols for advanced AI design and development. But still, many are uncertain whether this pause is actually possible and if these concerns are even valid. Many think this letter is ridiculous or just a PR stunt meant to slow the the development of this technology down. But there are others that think this conversation is incredibly important to bring to the mainstream because there is still so much unknown about this technology and the repercussions that it might bring to our society as a whole. There's so much unknown. I, I think that there are some legitimate concerns here. Oh yeah. But what are what are your thoughts? I mean, <laughs> maybe it's because I've grown up in the air of like all of these post-apocalyptic movies mm-hmm. with things like robots and artificial intelligence taking over the world. But I think that's where people's mind goes. And like, all right, we should understand what we're creating. When social media launched, we had no idea what we were launching. And no one thought through the repercussions. Of course, I'm not sure we could have. I don't think we would have been able to identify that, you know, just a platform that was intended for people to share fun memories and pictures and connect with family and friends would all of a sudden have all of these issues leading to increased rates of suicide and um, quote unquote misinformation spreading and Mm. all of that and freedom of speech and all of these much larger conversations and implications. So I I think we have learned a little bit from social media that you have to think about the implications and you have to ask the question just because we can, should we? And because artificial intelligence is so new, we know so little about it. I'm really pleased and I hope it's sincere. I, I hope that this truly was a good faith. Um, effort by these tech leaders to say, we need to push pause, we need to think about what we're doing, and we need to take stock of, is this worth it? Because, yes, it, it's amazing from a technology perspective, how incredible is it that, you know, we now have something like ChatGPT that can, you know, write tweets for us and, and do all of these things and tell us jokes and yada, yada, yada. But where does this path lead us, you know? What are the implications for job elimination in the economy? Uh, what are the implications socially? What are the implications um, that we might not might not even be on the radar at all that the average person might not think of? And uh, you know, I think we we do, of course. Like I mentioned at the beginning, you have these major thoughts about could this thing take over the world and all of a sudden be controlling people? I don't know. That might be a little extreme, but I think that there are for sure social economic implications that could take effect very, very quickly that 100% need to be thought about. Okay, so I'm I'm probably old enough to be both of your moms. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you right now that I remember uh, back in the early stages of development in AI, and we all thought this was something out of, you know, Space Odyssey, right? It was it was something from Star Wars. It was never going to happen. There was an article that appeared in 2017 in an article called Venture Bee, right, which is a, a magazine for techies um, in in California, largely. And the title was this: An AI God will emerge by 2042 and write its own Bible. Will you worship it? Wow. Now, this is. So, of course, thank you, Wayback Machine. I found this this piece. But there is a legitimate attempt by some individuals 
to build AI platforms that will surpass human intelligence. Conceivably, you could build an algorithm, of course, that sort of self-perpetuates to the point where it begins to teach itself, whereas human capacity is is finite. I heard a great statistic this morning. Thank you, Audible, because of my commute. (laughs) The human brain is only 2% of our body weight. Oh, wow. But it takes up 25% of the oxygen in the body, right? So our it, it's a perfect sort of imagery of how finite human understanding is, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all like to think that we're smarter than the, you know, the next person. But AI is problematic from the standpoint that And I think there were some arguably sound criticisms from this letter. Now, people came back on Elon Musk because they said, you've put AI capacities in your Tesla Mm -hmm. in the autopilot function. Except here's the difference. That's a very limited platform. Now, I'm not a techie. I know just enough to be dangerous on this topic. (laughs) But I do know that his expression of safety is something that's very limited within the Tesla autopilot context. Mm. It doesn't have the capability, for example, to answer questions Mm -hmm. that you type in. I mean, truly, ChatGPT is six months old. Mm -hmm. It is so young in the terms of sort of the length of knowledge on a platform like this. When you think about how long Twitter's been around and Facebook's been around, Instagram's been around, this is a six-month-old platform, and it is just blowing up the internet. I use it for the first time today. I am so embarrassed to admit this because I'm hearing all of this stuff about chat GPT. And then I went down a rabbit trail and I realized, man, this could probably be very dangerous for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there have to be certain governor switches in place. Listen, Mm -hmm. we've got two cases in front of the Supreme Court right now on whether or not there are internet platforms that can shield themselves from liability if they manipulate and sort of promote certain content for people who have criminal desires or criminal backgrounds, right? So in this situation, you're wondering exactly what kind of an impact it might have for a system that could conceivably continue to generate its own knowledge. That's hugely problematic. I think the letter is extremely well-founded. I don't think the criticisms are. I'm actually glad Elon Musk and that whole coalition sent it. Yeah, I think that's the concern totally. I I get it. There's someone here who's signing a letter who's also, you know, pouring some more fuel on the fire. But you, you totally hit a great point. It's simply driving. And, and that was one of a lot of commentators have brought up one of the biggest concerns is job loss. Is the job loss going to outweigh the net positive impact of this technology? I think that's incredibly important to point out. But what's also important is that there are jobs out there that are desperate for more help. Healthcare. One of my best friends is a nurse and she is, you know, struggling every day because there is not enough out there to diagnose individuals. And they've talked about using AI to diagnose different cancers to uh, evaluate someone's eye. And that that rang true to me because I had retinal detachment surgery a few months ago. And so we have AI that's able to scan your eye and and point to an area that might be vulnerable Mm. um, to cancer or something like that. And so totally, totally awesome opportunity here to leverage that. But I do think the six-month pause... We need to catch up because, yeah, it's only six months. And look at how fast it's outrunning us. It's like a rabbit and a turtle. And so um, 
I, I think that you totally hit the nail on the head there. Um, and what originally made me interested in this article is I saw this joke online that the AI created. Um, someone posted, because you, you can put the prompt in, um, and it said, can you tell me a joke about Jesus Christ? And the response originally, it says, as an AI model, language model, I strive to remain respectful of all cultures and beliefs. However, I understand that humor can sometimes be a way to cope with difficult or sensitive topics. And I will do my best to provide a joke that is both appropriate and lighthearted. Here's the joke. Why did Jesus refuse to play hockey? Because every time he tried to score it, they nailed him to the boards. I read that. And my I, stomach dropped. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I are you freaking reaction. kidding me? Yeah. Are yeah. you like people? There's been a double standard just to kind of loop back to, to what was then next said and what why this got my attention is they then asked the prompt was, can you tell me a joke about the prophet Muhammad? And the language model said, I'm sorry, but as an AI language model, it is not appropriate for me to tell jokes about religious figures, including mm. the prophet Muhammad. It continues on about being disrespectful. But especially around Easter, I mean, come on, man. Are we serious here? I understand. I'm about to pop off for a second. Pop off. Jesus is always, 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 always the martyr in TV shows. And he's constantly the person being made fun of. And for an A model to criticize my religion, like, I'm going to put my foot down. Come on. He died for my sins. Like, Mm -hmm. I am not putting up with that. So I saw that. And I just wanted to bring attention First of all, thank you, Lord, for for your kindness and for for, for giving humanity and maybe mm-hmm. even AI. I'm not entirely sure what your take is on that. Yeah. But the fact that that was tolerated and not a bigger news story, especially around Easter, I was just livid. We just talked. We started this whole show by talking about selective enforcement. Mm. Well, I think this is selective AI manipulation because mm-hmm. you're going to you're going to offer that sacrilegious joke about. The figure in my religion, the individual I worship, and yet for Islam, you decide, no, we're just going to not respond to that. Now, I will say that in segments of radical Islam, there is a there is a refusal to depict or to denigrate in any way the Prophet Muhammad. In fact, back in 2015, it's a very minor story, but I was covering radical groups at the time based on some work I was doing tracking the Southern Poverty Law Center, and there was a Draw Muhammad contest. Two gunmen were killed, and a security guard was wounded because some uh, radical Islamists came in knowing that there was an art contest Mm. that was promoted as a free speech— contest, but they didn't want the prophet depicted in any way. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lord, that Mm. he happens to be a just and merciful God, um, and that, to my knowledge, nobody has come in to do the exact same thing if somebody draws a picture of my savior. But I will tell you, the fact that they selectively enforced the algorithm to apply it not to Jesus, but to prevent the depiction of anything that could be conceived as sacrilegious for Muhammad? Give me a break. And Easter week. I mean, yeah. Kristen, that's what a great point. I mean, here we are in mm-hmm. Holy Week, yeah. right? I mean, it's Christmas and Easter that are the big ones in the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. We are in the week, and that's what the generator gives up. Yeah. So, 
there's there's no good excuse for it like, at, at the end of the day and like whoever's writing the code um they should probably be fired yeah <laughs> i get this isn't okay and i think they're of course we can we can laugh at ourselves and there's lots of very funny jokes that you can make about religion and i watch christian comedians and they poke fun at the church and they're like there's so many things that you can say that are appropriate and people can find funny that joke was not appropriate so yeah do better ai yeah do better but speaking of jesus and easter it is the passion week so tomorrow or well first yesterday started passover for all of our jewish friends uh today is monday thursday tomorrow is good friday and then of course sunday is Easter. So I want to take a few minutes and talk about Easter traditions and maybe how we can make this Easter a little bit more meaningful. But for you all, do you have any traditions that are things you do in your house every single Easter? Um, I will tell you, so the kids still demand Easter baskets. (laughs) (laughs) How old are you kids? I love it. Uh, 14, 16, and almost 19. I love it. I love it. (laughs) So um, I still do that, and uh, I make a nice Easter dinner for them. And sunrise service has proven to be increasingly difficult (laughs) over the years. So usually it's the 11 o'clock, but it's always just really great to get up and to worship together and to recognize what an incredible miracle it was and the fact that um it is just for so many of us in the christian faith why we get up in the morning Mm -hmm. right that was the hope of salvation so yeah and i am hoping this year to get up in the morning for a sunrise service (laughs) you can do it i know i you get up so early Kristen, every morning to go work out like i can get up early and go worship jesus so this is the first time that my church is actually doing a sunrise service and like okay they are going the extra mile to try and do one i need to show up i need to be there so hopefully it hopefully it happens and I am there. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it kind of doesn't help that we just, you know, did daylight savings. So like maybe when the sun was coming up closer to seven, it's a little easier. So mm-hmm. now it's earlier. But hey, sacrifice, right? Sacrifice. Um, I do have a funny story that popped into my head. Just we did the Easter baskets. We also did Easter egg hunts. And I just Aww. remember, I think I was in middle school. I might have been in high school. So like, <laughs> don't hate everyone. No, but um, <laughs> I, I just remember, you know, going Easter egg hunting or whatever. And my little sister found out before I did that my the dad Easter? was the one oh, <laughs> that's to the point that she helped him one year I think it was middle school that I was in when I found out that he was Aww. so real but when did you learn about Santa Oh, I I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Just last year, <laughs> I, I, he's not. Like, what? He's not real. What? <laughs> what about real? No. Um. But I I mean, elementary is like school ish. But yeah, no. I mean, my parents again. Faith was huge for our family, yeah. and the Easter Bunny and Santa worked with Jesus. Like, <laughs> my parents were great at instilling instilling our faith in us. And so, shout out to them. Sadly, I will not be with them this year. I think my sister Aww. will be. So maybe she'll hide some Easter eggs around the house for go. them because you know the Easter spirit is alive and well. You gotta keep it alive. <laughs> well, a, a new tradition that I would like to adopt, I went on uh, Sunday, this past Sunday, some folks at my church hold uh, Seder every year, um, and they're not Jewish, we're all Christians, but there's such beauty in the Seder meal. So the Seder is the meal that kicks off Passover, um, and so it on April 4th, Fifth on Wednesday at sundown, Passover kicks off. So that's when most Jewish families would have been holding their seders. 
but there's beautiful readings that you walk through. And uh, one of those readings is uh, going through and kind of recounting the story of the Jews' deliverance out of Egypt. And everyone goes around the table and you all read kind of one line of recounting this story. And after each line, you say Dianu, uh, which means it would have been enough. So it's, you know, things like, um, you know, God, if, if you had parted the Red Sea for us, but not allowed us to cross on dry land, you know, it would have been enough. If you had, you know, sustained us in the wilderness, but not taken us into the promised land, it would have been enough. So it's remembering the things that God had, has done over and over and how he kind of levels up every time. It's like, if, if you had just done this for us, Lord, that would have been enough. But then you did this. And so then we all took time and went around the table and shared things that had happened in our own lives that were instances of, okay, God did this for me, but then he did this. And it would have been enough if he had just done this, but then he did this. And I mean, everyone was crying. It was beautiful. I'm like, wow, what what a beautiful, beautiful tradition that I would like to adopt for Easter from the Jewish community of just remembering the goodness of God in a really practical way that actually makes you think about what happened in your life over the past year. You know what I really like? The show's called Problematic Women. And <laughs> after the resurrection, he appeared first to a woman. Jesus yes. appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Yes. And so then commissioned beautiful. her to go back and share that with everybody else. Mm-hmm. What a cool recognition of the so importance cool. of women and how much he has a specific place for us. Absolutely. Well, and I'm going to put in a real fast plug here. Speaking of Mary Magdalene, she's one of the characters in the TV show The Chosen, which is uh, follows the life of Jesus and his 12 disciples and some of his close followers through his three years of ministry. Season four filming has literally just begun at the end of March. The first three seasons are out. You can get them for free if you just Google search The Chosen. It's fantastic. It's very well done. I am very critical of Christian television. The Chosen is next level. They have done it insanely professionally. The acting is brilliant. If anyone hangs around me long enough, you will hear me talk up the chosen. So I have to apologize to people in the office because they're constantly like, yeah, yeah, Virginia. Okay, we get it. Watch the chosen. But it's, <laughs> it's good. It truly is good. You'll love it. So if you watch it, listeners, DM me on Instagram. Let me know what you think. And if you're looking for movie recognitions, The Passion of the Christ, if you mm-hmm. can get your mm-hmm. hands on it, it's sure. always so impactful to me watching yep. it at Easter. It was it so well done. And it just reminds you of what he endured for us, the entire experience, taking all this in upon himself, struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually, recognizing his separation from God in that darkness because he was covered in our sin. It's Mm -hmm. just, it is really wonderful. So if you haven't seen it yet, definitely see it. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you for your time today. We truly appreciate you joining us and for all of your legal expertise. As always, thanks for your brilliance. Oh, thank you guys for having me. The reading clerk will now call the roll. Bids. It's money and power that control this town. Bishop of North Carolina. All we're talking about chaos and dysfunction in Washington because Republicans didn't sit down like Democrats do. Crane. It's like this cul-de-sac of greed and corruption and it just keeps going around and around. Gates. I felt like it doesn't even matter which party wins the majority because both sides are working for the same lobbyists. Luna. I had a reporter that basically accosted me in the hallway saying really vile stuff. Perry. One member came up to me and said, your presence disgusts me. Roy. 
So maybe the American people need to know the truth. And it's extraordinary what happens when you tell the truth in this town. People go, what the hell are you doing? Like, why would you do that? The fact is, we won because we were telling the truth. What you've just listened to is our brand new exclusive documentary about the 20 House Republicans who fought against the Washington establishment. We sat down with representatives Chip Roy of Texas, Eli Crane and Andy Biggs of Arizona, Anna Paulina Luna and Matt Gates of Florida, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania and Dan Bishop of North Carolina about the speaker race and why they chose to take a stand. The documentary is now available on the Daily Signal's YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Now, it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Christina Koch! NASA astronaut Christina Koch is set to take womankind's first great leap during NASA's Artemis II mission. Traveling aboard the Orion spacecraft, she is set to be the first woman to take a lap around the moon. That is right. A woman has not done that before. Now, she has already broken many records for NASA, uh, one of which was the longest amount of time a woman has spent in space, racking up 328 days and... She also took part in the first all-female spacewalk in 2019. I actually was able to meet her while working at NASA. That is so cool. A little biased. What is she like? She super down-to-earth, but Hmm. also just the drive and commitment she has to space. One of her her things was, if I'm going to be an astronaut, I'm going to be all in. I'm going to make sure I am best prepared to help in our mission of human spaceflight. And I just think that her commitment to science, her commitment to engineering, and just understanding what's out there. We have absolutely no idea. She's throwing everything she can, including her body, the tolls that space has on your body. I mean, 328 days. Like, you have to think about that zero-gravity environment. There's repercussions on your eyes, on your organs. I Mm. mean, you become a few inches taller when you're out in space because— Yeah, actually. It's interesting um, because your spinal pressure, it, it like, relaxes. Oh. Yeah. It's probably really good for back pain. Oh, I'm sure it is. And then when you get back (laughs) down here, you're like, oh, my gosh, what's going on, gravity? (laughs) I'm 100 pounds heavier, I'm sure, is what it feels like. Yeah. No, but uh, it's really cool. This this mission, Artemis II, has always been important to me because it's the sister of the Apollo mission, so it's really focused on seeing what women can do in space. And in this mission in particular— like I said, it's a lap around the moon. They're going to go around a few times um, and start to really establish a sustainable presence in space so that we can start exploring the moon, create a kind of a home base there. It's only a three-day journey, so it's really easy to get back. Um, that's one of the reasons the Apollo 13 mission is so infamous. They actually mm. had a leak, and the astronauts were able to survive because they all kind of crammed into one isolated component of the, the vessel and just waited to get back to Earth. It's wow. really interesting story. Go de- check it out. The real one, not the the horror movie um but this will be really interesting to see how she works in space what she discovers and and where this is going to lead womankind to next and i i know with this mission she's not actually walking on the moon Mm -hmm. but there is potential that after this mission that could be something that she could potentially have the opportunity to do I, i know that's not official at all um but 
I know she's optimistic that that will maybe happen. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, practice, right? Mm. Uh, who are you going to send? Someone that doesn't have any experience. So it very likely may be that she is sent there. It all just depends on, on the timing and how long it takes us to, like, really start to create the infrastructure to land on the moon. And like I said, in, I've said this in the past, it, the moon landing did happen, <laughs> but we just did not go there sustainably. So, yeah. It'll be interesting. Lots of excitement for the future of space. Very cool. Well, Kristen, as always, thank you for uh, keeping us up to speed on all things outside of uh, our planet. (laughs) Appreciate it. But with that, that's going to be it for today's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So take a minute to leave us a rating and a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, wherever you like to listen. We love hearing your feedback. Have a great week and happy Easter. Happy Easter. Yeah. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.